This morning, we are going to break into the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is a bit of an interesting book as far as it goes. Uh, it starts out reading much like a sermon, uh, something that an orator would present. And then it wraps up sounding like a letter with giving the current whereabouts of some people and wrapping up with some greetings. So it's interesting in that aspect, but it's also interesting because there's not really a consensus on who wrote this book. Um, it is be- it is believed, and I believe that the Apostle Paul wrote this book. Uh, some other people would disagree, and if you're one of those that disagree, that's fine by me. You're more than entitled to your opinion on that. And I'm not going to argue with you, but I will give you a couple of reasons why I think that it probably was Paul who wrote this book. Uh, There are references to the temple sacrifices that date this writing to right around Paul's time. We know that the temple was taken out of commission in 70 AD. Um, Right before that, Paul would have been living and active in his ministry. Hebrews is written as a letter to the Jewish converts to Christianity. And this Judaism, even after Christ's death and resurrection, was still very much entrenched in society here. Uh, and, you know, it's it's kind of like uh, the end of the Civil War. You think about that, you think, oh, well, Abraham Lincoln emancipated the slaves, the Emancipation Proclamation set them free. Well, that didn't actually happen overnight. You have to get that information to everyone, to all of the slave owners, to all of the slaves. That information has to be disseminated before it takes effect. That was much the same as uh, this instance in society in Jerusalem at the time of Christ's resurrection. Uh, That information had to get around to the Jews before they had a chance to accept Christ. Now, theologically, the death and resurrection of Christ is effectual for salvation. We see this with the criminal who was hung on the cross beside Jesus. He accepted Jesus as his savior, and Jesus told him, today you will be with me in paradise. So theologically, that had an immediate effect. Jesus is effectual for salvation at that moment. Um, But in society, Judaism was still very much entrenched. Now, the Jews at this time had what I would call the opposite problem we usually have. Okay, Usually we're concerned about backsliding. Uh, we don't want to fall out of things that we need to be doing. These guys were about the opposite of that. They were struggling with adding things to Jesus, doing more than they needed to for salvation. Um, so who I believe is Paul is writing to the Hebrews, and he's saying, Guys, Jesus is better than all this other stuff that's wrapped up in the law. Jesus is better. You don't have to add anything to Jesus. Jesus is sufficient. In fact, in this first little passage that we're going to read, he says that Jesus by himself purged our sins. And there's no need to add anything to that. The author is writing to what we would call a fairly spiritually immature group. Um, they're, they're trying to add things to their salvation, um, and they're struggling to progress in their walk with Christ because of these things that they're trying to add. 
He's reminding them that they have a better covenant with Christ than the Mosaic covenant, than the law gave them. He reminds them that Christ is the superior person to Moses, to Joshua. Christ is superior. And Christ's priesthood, we'll see it's the order of Melchizedek. This priesthood is superior to the Aaronic priesthood, the Levites. And the principle of faith, faith is superior to that of the law. And we will see all of these things as we move through the book of Hebrews. The author uses we several times in addressing the Hebrews, which would place them as a Hebrew himself, right? So this would fall right in line with Paul, okay? Paul was a Jew of the Jews, uh, used to be called Saul. He was one of the top teachers in Jerusalem. Um, In fact, he was an understudy to Gamaliel. His master Gamaliel uh, said that one of the biggest challenges with teaching Paul was keeping him in books. He would read him so fast that Gamaliel couldn't get him enough books to read. So we know that this guy was a devout Jew and would definitely identify himself with the Jewish people here. In Hebrews 13.33, the writer identifies himself with Timothy. Again, we know that Paul could certainly identify himself with Timothy. Um, He writes to Timothy a couple of times, and Timothy is very active in Paul's ministries. The closing of the book of Hebrews is also very typical of Paul. It reads, grace be with you all. Amen. And we know that Paul has written several other letters that are canonized in our scripture, and that is how he closes several of them. Uh, So also very typical of Paul. Now, the question is going to come up in your mind, if it hasn't already. Well, if Paul wrote this, why didn't he sign it like he did every other letter he wrote? And I think that we can find the answer to that by looking at his past experiences with the Jews. When he would come into a town um, preaching Christ, he would go pretty directly to the synagogue, to the center of Jewish teaching in that town. He would reason with the teachers there, and he would try to convince them, using their Old Testament scriptures, that Jesus is the prophesied Messiah. What was the end of most of those encounters? He was run out of town. He was stoned. On one occasion, they actually succeeded in killing him before God brought him back, and he went back into the town. So we know that the Jews weren't a huge fan of this guy, Paul, bringing the way into Judaism. Okay, so I think that that is probably why Paul did not sign this letter. He knew that if he said, hey, this is Paul writing to you, they would immediately trash it and move on. So we don't have him signing his name on this letter, but the style and a lot of the language is fairly typical of Paul. In fact, Peter, in one of his epistles, uh, he wrote that his brother Paul was very wordy. And as you'll see going through this, it's fairly wordy. So that's that's one more reason if all the others aren't good enough for you. So moving into chapter 1, we will see um, the writer frame Christ as better than the angels. And this is important because many people around the world 
uh, think of Christ either as an angel or as something similar to an angel. And this passage is going to fairly well dispel that idea. We know that Christ was not created like the angels were. Christ has always been and always will be. The angels are a direct creation of Christ. Okay, so he is not the same, and we will see that as we move on. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 reads, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. So here in verse 1, um, it says that God has revealed himself in different ways in the past. We see uh, he revealed himself to Adam very directly. The scripture tells us in Genesis 3.8 that God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. God doesn't walk with me at all, physically. You know, So he chose to um, show himself to Adam in that special way. Moses, Exodus 33.11 says, So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. He doesn't speak to me face to face. He speaks to me through his word. And that is his main source of revelation today, his word and through his son, Jesus. Even Moses' face shone. It glowed after he talked to God face to face. And that freaked the, the people of Israel out. He had to cover himself, veil himself, so that they wouldn't freak out. That is a special way that God revealed himself to Moses. So God used these two men, and he used all the prophets, uh, the other patriarchs, to reveal himself to his people, the Israelites, the Hebrews that this letter is being written to. He has revealed himself in different ways throughout history. Verse 2 says, He has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. So he says, has in these last days. Um, This can be read as the last age. If we're talking about dispensations, um, the church age is what we're living in now. And uh, the church age is governed by grace. So he has in these last days spoken to us by his son. This is basically telling us that there are no new revelations of God after Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the end all be all. And in the next verse, verse three, it says that he is the express image of God's person. We know that Jesus is God in the flesh. He who has seen me has seen the father, Jesus said. He says, spoken to us by his son. This is the more perfect estimate. This is better than the law. This is the final revelation of God, whom he has appointed heir of all things, speaking of Christ, through whom also he made the worlds. So we see in scripture that all things are from him, aka he created everything. All things are through him. Colossians 1.17 tells us 
that he holds all things together. In him all things consist, and everything is to him. At the end, everything is wrapping back around to Jesus Christ. Just as it used to be before the fall of man, it all ends with Jesus, and God has appointed him heir of all things and has given him judgment over all things. Uh, we find that Christ was given judgment by the Father in John five twenty two through 23. So everything is from him, through him, and to him. And I like that little epithet. Um, for one, it sounds pretty cool, uh, from him, through him, and to him. And also, it gives us an idea of how Christ has impacted all of history. He created it, he sustains it, and it's all coming back to him. From him, through him, and to him. Verse 3 reads, Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Back to verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. This word person in the Greek is uh, translated from the Greek word hypostasis. And you might uh, recognize this word as being a root for the hypostatic union. You might have heard that term used to describe the Trinity. This idea of three persons in one. Um, God is a trinity, the holy trinity. And there's been many examples of this idea of a trinity pointed to in nature. Some are egregious, like the egg and the water. You got the egg, you got the yolk, the white, and the shell of the egg. They're all one but separate pieces. You know, that's that doesn't do it justice. You got the water, it's in three states, you got solid, liquid, and gas. It's all water, but it's kind of different. Again, like not a great example. Um, there are some that have been pointed to in creation that get closer to being accurate. Uh, we have these more complex models like the spatial dimensions. You have three spatial dimensions, length, width, and height. Um, each of those by itself can be stacked on top of it to create three dimensions, and um, each by themselves contain a dimension. Um, that is closer to what we see in the Trinity. Um, energy is similar. Time is similar. Uh, and I'm not going to go into all of them. It gets kind of in the weeds. But that would be an interesting study if that sparks your interest. However, these models do have some utility for us because we can generally wrap our minds around creation better than the creator. Um, and Romans 1.20 even says that since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, creation, even his eternal power and Godhead. His eternal power, Didymus, the power that God has can be seen through nature and his Godhead. Um, that is his essence, his being, 
the fact that he's a trinity can be seen in nature. Um, and we can, we can see that all around us, but none of these models really hold a candle to the perfect picture of God. And that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the express image of his person, his essence, his being. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. He is the express image of his person. If you want to see how God would deal with people, look at Jesus. You want to see God's character, look at Jesus. We even see these three persons of the Trinity working together in perfect unison um, in Matthew 3, 13 through 17. I'll read that real quick. This is talking about the baptism of Jesus. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you are coming to me. But Jesus answered and said to him, permit it to be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus had been baptized. Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. So we see Jesus is getting baptized, the son. We have the spirit coming down and lighting on him like a dove. Verse 17, and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we have the father. All three of them are working in unison to accomplish this task, to give us this example of baptism. Jesus gave us this example. And all throughout Jesus's life, the three persons of the Trinity are working in seamless unison to accomplish God's will. Jesus is the perfect example of the Trinity, of God's person. He is the express image of his person. And upholding all things by the word of his power, when they had by him when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And upholding all things by the word of his power. Again, I want to point you to Colossians 1.17. In him all things consist. He literally holds the world together. If you've seen an atom bomb explode, hopefully not in person, hopefully online or something, um, you see the immense amount of energy that that generates. And that is by taking an atom apart. There necessarily must be more force applied to keep that atom together than it takes, than energy is released when it's split apart. It's like a spring. If a spring is exerting 10 pounds of pressure out, I have to put more than 10 pounds of pressure to keep it together. In creation, that is an example of the power that Jesus Christ holds. He holds all things together. Each individual atom, he holds together. When he had by himself purged our sins, only through Jesus may we obtain salvation. Jesus alone, he himself purged our sins. 
the Jews that are being written to wanted to take Jesus and something else. Jesus and the law. Jesus and the feasts. Jesus and keeping the Sabbath. Jesus and temple sacrifices. Whatever it is, they wanted Jesus and. Jesus plus. And that's not it. That will take you away from Jesus when you start adding to him. Um, And that is not the direction we want to go in. It is interesting to me um, with this writer writing to the Hebrews, who would have been very acquainted with the Old Testament law, uh, that he expressly mentions by himself purging our sins. I'll point you back to the Levitical sacrifices and the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament. We see it referenced in Leviticus 6 and in other places. Um, I'm sorry, Leviticus 16. Usually, on any ordinary day, there would be several priests working together with the high priest to sacrifice animals on behalf of the people of Israel. On the Day of Atonement, that was not the case. The high priest worked by himself on that day to offer sacrifices that would atone for Israel's sin. This came once a year, and it was the high priest's job by himself to offer these sacrifices. This is a wonderful picture of the high priest that we have in Jesus Christ. And we will talk more about Jesus as high priest um, towards the end of this study and even more on in later chapters. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is a fulfillment of Psalm 110.1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. Okay, and we have that seating of Christ signifying the fulfillment of this prophecy from the Old Testament. Again, the Israelites, those who this letter was written to, would have had this in their mind. They would have been extremely familiar with this prophecy and many others. This image of Christ seated at the right hand of the Father is never used of his co-equal state. Um, It is only used of his exalted state. Okay, Um, He is exalted after his resurrection as the Son of Man. And this comes only after his sufferings, after he was made into the flesh, and suffered as we suffer. This is how Christ makes intercession on our behalf. Uh, you can cross-reference Romans 8.34 and 1 John 2.1. We'll talk more about his uh, perfect substitution later on in this study as well. Verse 4, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. In the second chapter of Hebrews, the writer is going to tell us that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels, but only for a time. That is, when he was in the flesh on the earth. He was confined to a body of flesh, just like you and me. Um, And that placed him a little lower than the angels for a time. We know he was not created. He always was and he always will be. 
that's better than the angels. The angels were created by him. But when he took on flesh, he took on certain limitations, same limitations that you and I experience um, in our bodies, because we're not just a body of spirit or a body of flesh. Um, angels do not have a body of flesh. Now, sometimes they can appear as a person, and I, I do believe that. That's pointed to in Scripture. Um, and some people have personal stories that relate to that. Um, but Jesus made little lower than the angels for a bit. But after the resurrection and ascension, he would sit at the right hand of the Father so much better than the angels, restored to his glory, restored to his rightful throne, his rightful place at the right hand of God the Father. Verse 5 reads, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. The point here is, God has never called an angel his son. That is a special title reserved for Jesus Christ. And if you study the Hebrew language, you know that angels are referred to sometimes as sons of God in the plural. Collectively, they are direct creations of God, and that's why they are called sons of God, uh, Elohim, Beneha Elohim. And this is true. They are direct creations of God. They are referred to in the plural as sons of God, but never singularly. An angel is never referred to as the son of God, okay? Always collectively. The angels are sons of God inasmuch as they have been created by God, but not begotten of him like Christ. The son of God holds a distinguished place, and he has absolutely no beginning or end. Cross-reference John 1.1, Genesis 1.1. Um, even the first <laughs> sentence of the Bible, in the beginning, God created. The God there in the Hebrew language is Elohim. This is in the plural. You have Elohim, the im makes it plural. Like seraphim, cherubim, cherub is singular and seraph is singular. When you add the im, that makes it plural. So in the very first sentence of the Bible, we have a reference to God as the Holy Trinity. God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, created everything. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses will say that Jesus is Michael the Archangel. That is not the case. Michael is very distinct from Jesus. Michael, the Archangel... Um, who is the the head of the angels, is infinitely lower in position than Christ is. Michael is a created being himself. Mormons believe that Jesus is the brother of Lucifer, which would also place him into the category of an angel. Okay, Again, not true. Uh, you give way too much credit to Lucifer when you equate him with Jesus. Truly, he is a... He is nowhere as powerful as Jesus is. In fact, we see in Job that Satan has to ask permission of God before he can do anything. Um, he is a minion. He 
does not have the same power as Jesus. Uh, so that can't be the case. In fact, the opposite of Satan. So, you know, they set up this contrast between Satan and Jesus saying Satan is the opposite of Jesus. Okay, you got like this evil twin vibe going on. The more accurate illustration would be opposing Satan and Michael the archangel. Okay, that would be a more accurate uh, juxtaposition there. Some sects of Judaism, and remember we're, we're reading this letter who is, that was pinned to the people of Israel. Some sects of Judaism were at this time placing angels on this pedestal that they did not need to be on. They were worshiping angels. And I do believe that is partly why Paul, supposedly Paul, uh, includes this part uh, about the angels. Uh, he's writing to this people and he wants to say, hey guys, chill with the angels. Okay, Jesus is much better than they are. He brings good news of great joy. Uh, the angels serve him. Okay, verse six. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And the, of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? But to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. So in verse 8, it says, but to the son, he says, look in your Bible at the capitalizations there. Son and he are both capitalized. This is the father speaking to Jesus, the son. But to the son, God says, God the father says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Very interesting. God the father speaks to Jesus and calls him God. Equating them. Jesus is God. And God the Father acknowledges it. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. We also have a type set up here. Um, a type is a sort of foreshadowing of Jesus. Okay, The type that's set up here is David with Christ. David of the Old Testament, you know, David and Goliath that same David. Uh, this little section that the writer uses and he references is from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7, uh, likely a psalm of David. And I'll explain this little type briefly, but we don't have a lot of time to go into it thoroughly. Um, David, Jesus's type, was first anointed at Bethlehem Interesting. Reference 1 Samuel 16, 13 and Psalm 89, 20. He was also anointed yet again at Hebron, first over the land of Judah, 2 Samuel 2, 4, and then over all of Israel, 2 Samuel 5, 3. So he was anointed twice, first at Bethlehem, the second at Hebron. At Hebron, he was anointed over Judah and then over Israel. 
not till the death of Saul, who is the current king of Israel, um, was David able to take the kingdom, right? Because that previous king was still in power. You know, the story, Saul chases David around, tries to kill him. David has mercy on Saul, all of that. That's kind of what we're talking about here. Um, this is the same as it was not till after Christ's death that the Father set him at his right hand far above all principalities and powers. Ephesians 1, 20 and 21. And you could go on into this example of Christ and David, uh, but we're, we are going to reference it one more time in this study, uh, assuming we get through chapter 2, but we don't have time to go into it too much more. Verse 10 says, And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool? So God is still speaking here, as he was in this the previous quote. He's saying that Jesus, Lord, created the earth. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. Still speaking to Jesus. This exalts Jesus in our minds as we read it. The creation is going to grow old and wax away, just like a garment wears out. Your favorite t-shirt of 20 years, it's wearing out. You need to retire it. Garments grow old. The creation will grow old. Jesus will never grow old. He will never change. He remains the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The universe is obviously wearing down. We have measurements from many, many years ago uh, that have measured the speed of light, and we have more recent measurements, both being accurate measurements. In fact, the, um, the error in each of those measurements does not overlap. Uh, and bear with me a second. But um, the speed of light is actually getting slower. Light has traveled faster in the past than it does now. Every moment, it slows down. Not by much, but it does slow down. So that would have made appreciable differences in history. The speed of light is slowing down. The rotation of the earth is slowing down. The oceans are getting saltier and saltier. Eventually, they'll be too salty to sustain life. The sun is shrinking. Not at an alarming rate. We got plenty of time. Um, Jesus will return before that happens. and uh, we, But we can clearly see that the creation is winding down. It's like a clock that has been wound up, and it's fading away. There's a lot of depth here in this study of creation that I would encourage you to seek out. Um, there's a lot of figures that you can look at to see, and things are about to wrap up. Um, and like I said, I do believe that Jesus will return before uh, we reach what's called ultimate heat death when there's no more energy to be used, but it is on the way. Verse 13, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand 
till I make your enemies a footstool. Point being, he's never said that to an angel, very simply. Verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Angels are instructed by God. They do his bidding. They are subject to him and they minister, they serve those who will inherit salvation. If you've accepted Christ, that's you. You will inherit salvation. So angels sent by God actually do watch over us. They minister to those who will inherit salvation. Now we'll break into chapter 2. The writer writes, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. The focus should be on the revelation that Jesus brought. We've seen revelations brought by angels in history, recorded in scripture. Angels came to Mary, wanted to let her know, hey, you're going to be the mother of the Messiah. It's through you that God is going to be incarnate in the world. That was a revelation to Mary. That was brought by the angels. It came true perfectly. All that that angel said came true. Now, for if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, which it has, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, that which Jesus has brought to us, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. I told you it was going to get wordy. It is. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Verse 2, for if the words spoken through angels proved steadfast, it did prove steadfast, then how much more stock should we put in what the Son of God brings to us. That's his point. If angels can bring truth to us, how much more confidence should we have that the Son of God can bring truth to us? That's what he's saying here. God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. Verses 1 through 4 here is simply this. Keep Jesus in the center of your life and focus. Don't get sidetracked by peripheral junk. Keep Jesus at the forefront. Keep him in his preeminent place in your life, his rightful place. You know, I use this example a lot, and I love it. Scripture uses it too. But the cornerstone, Jesus is the cornerstone of our life. The cornerstone in old buildings was set. And it was something that every other stone was measured off of. We should be measuring every part of our life off of Jesus. That is the the example set up by the cornerstone. So don't neglect the great salvation that has been offered to you by Jesus by going off on other tangents, on other things. Keep Jesus at the forefront of your life. Don't replace him. Verse 5, for he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. Very simply, 
the world is not the angels to inherit. It's Jesus's. And we, as co-heirs with Christ, will also rule over the new world. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Verses 6 through 7 here is a reference from Psalm 8, 4 through 6. It says that Jesus was made a little lower than angels, and that being just for a time. This was for a very specific purpose, so that he may pay the sin debt that we owe. He was that propitiatory sacrifice that we needed. Now, angels are very powerful beings, and we see it throughout Scripture. Uh, We see in 2 Peter 2.11, Peter writes, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Peter calls angels great in power and might. Psalm 103.20 reads, bless the Lord, you his angels who excel in strength, who do his word, heeding the voice of his word. The psalmist says that angels excel in strength. 2 Kings 19-35 through references a time when one angel destroyed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. 185,000 soldiers were wiped out in one night by one angel. It's a pretty powerful dude. This same event is referenced in Isaiah 37, 36. And in Jude 1, 9, It says, yet Michael the archangel, we already discussed that this is the most powerful angel. Um, He is ranked the highest. Yet Michael the archangel in contending with the devil, Satan, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Michael actually clashed with Satan over the body of Moses, and they fought two very powerful beings coming at each other. But what does Michael do? First, what does Michael not do? He does not bring a reviling accusation against Satan. He says, God, you rebuke him. Because God is so much powerful than both of them. He knows that God is on his side. So he calls God to go to bat for him. The Lord rebuke you. All these examples that I just pointed to point to the power of God's angels. Humans, myself included, are much less powerful than these angels. We have these earthly bodies, and by taking on human form in an earthly body, Jesus subjected himself to the same limitations that we face that come with this body. However, Jesus would not always be lower than the angels. Hebrews 1.4 told us that he has obtained a more excellent name than the angels. And I say all of that to say this. Jesus was not created 
but is eternal. And this places him above everything in creation, which includes angels. When he came in human form, he took on these limitations that the angels did not have. Jesus had a body of flesh, and the angels were simply spirits. They do not suffer the same limitations. When Christ ascended to the Father after dying and rising, he was exalted far above the angels. So he starts out eternally above the angels. He's made temporarily lower than the angels coming as a man. And then he is exalted back far above the angels um, after fulfilling his purpose on earth. It was at that time that Christ sat down. We don't have any uh, reference to Christ sitting before he rose from the dead. Interesting. He sat down. His work was done. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels. Verse 8, that second sentence there, For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. Satan still rules in the present world. Uh, We see this in Matthew 4, when Jesus was being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Satan offers Jesus all the kingdoms of the world if he would just worship him. Jesus does not come back with, Satan, you can't do that. The world is not yours to offer. No, he says, you shall not worship anyone else but God. You serve him only. That was his rebuttal. That is like he was saying, yeah, you can give me that, but I'm not going to take it yet. Jesus had a plan, a plan set by the Father. Jesus asked God to take that cup of suffering from him. But yet, if it's not your will to take it, I'll do what you sent me to do. God did not take that cup from him, signifying that that was the only way. The suffering of Christ on the cross was the only way to accomplish salvation. Thankfully, though, This is not the eternal state of the world being subject to Satan. There is a time when Christ will reign on the earth. We refer to this time as the millennial reign or the thousand year reign of Christ. And I do believe that that will be a physical reign of Christ on the earth. Some will tell you that we're living in the millennial age. I don't believe that's true. Um, If we are, I think, Jesus is doing a lousy job, to be quite honest. Um, I don't think that we will see this same death, this suffering. Uh, Jesus will be a much better ruler. That is a time to look forward to, certainly. So the world will not always be subject to Satan, but Christ will come back to reign over his creation. I point you back to David. David was anointed by God as the next king while Saul was still holding that quote-unquote office. Saul was still on the throne when David was anointed as king. David could not come into the throne until Saul was taken out of the throne. Jesus 
is not going to come into his throne, his rightful place, until Satan is taken out. And we know that that will happen. That has been prophesied, um, and that will be the case. Satan will be taken off of his throne, and Christ will regain what is rightfully his. Jesus is the rightful heir of his creation, and he has paid the price for that. He has bought us with his blood. That is an immense price. This is not something that came easily. It's not cheap. People talk about cheap grace. There's nothing cheap about the grace of God. The blood of Jesus is the most precious thing in the universe and outside the universe. It is the most precious thing there is. This is how he bought us. And there is a time when all things come back to him. Verse 9, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. He suffered the same as we suffer. He was tempted the same ways that we are tempted. And because of that, he is able to be our substitution in death. Having died, he rose again. He conquered death. That is why death has lost its sting. And we'll talk about that here in just a second. Verse 10, for it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things. Again, pointing to Colossians 1.17. By whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call us brethren. That is incredible. The creator of the universe is not ashamed to call you his brethren. We will be co-heirs with him. Both he who sanctifies, that's Christ, and those who are being sanctified, that's you, are all of one. We partake of the same spirit, the spirit of God. For which reason, so that, but for that reason, he is not ashamed to call us brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. Just as we are flesh and blood, so was he. This serves to correct the Gnostic heresy that Jesus was only spirit. The Gnostics of this time, and this thought is actually still fairly prevalent today, they thought that the physical, all matter, was evil. They said, since Jesus was good, he must have just been spirit. This is not the case. 
This serves to correct that. And as much then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, that's you and me and our bodies, he himself likewise shared in the same. He had the same type of body we do, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Christ has defeated death. Death has lost its sting. Verse 15, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. There is a difference between a believer and a non-believer when it comes to confronting death. There's such a difference because the non-believer has no hope after death. There's nothing to hang on to. It's over. The believer, if you truly believe that Christ came to take our place in death, we will not taste death. He has done it for us. We will never be separated from God in that way. And that is how we define spiritual death, being separated from God. We will never have to experience that if you are a born-again Christian. And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. Were you subject to bondage over your fear of death before coming to Christ. Unbelievers are bound. They are slaves to death. It's a worry. It should worry you if there's nothing left. If you have reached your end and there's nothing left, that should worry you. But through Christ, we are freed from that bondage. Verse 16 For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. That's us, speaking of humans. He doesn't give aid to angels because he can't sympathize with them. He hasn't been tempted the way that they were. He has been tempted the same way that each of us have been tempted. He can sympathize with us. Therefore, he can come to our aid in those situations. 17, therefore in all things, he has to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. He will come to your aid if you ask him. He will not force anything upon you. That is not his character. But if you ask him, he will come. If you ask him to be the Lord of your life, he certainly will. But he does not force that upon anyone. You were created in the image of God. God has free will. We also have free will. You can deny him. You can accept him. And that is your choice. If there is a stirring in your heart, put there by the Holy Spirit, I plead with you to not leave this place until that is settled. There is no better day than today to become a co-heir with Christ. He is our faithful high priest. Let's close our study this morning with a word of prayer.